What's up, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of IndiePod, where we get to talk to the people behind some of our favorite indie games. Today, we have Ian Cafino with us, a developer behind the upcoming roguelite known as Dreamscaper. Ian, thanks for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Josh. Uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah. Um, before we get into Dreamscaper itself, I always like to start off by taking uh, or talking about the minds behind the games. So Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you into the game industry and what you actually do on the team. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I have a background in uh, more traditional uh, visual arts um, mm -hmm. in graphic design. And, you know, I was kind of going through school at a time uh, when that was being phased out in favor mm -hmm. of uh, more like UX design. Uh, so right. I kind of caught the tail end of like traditional print media, which, you know, <laughs> kind of set my career in like a strange path. So I basically bounced around quite a bit. I have made a documentary. I worked for a small media production company for a few years. I was doing um, things tertiary to game. Uh, game making mm -hmm. for a long time and things in a bunch of different fields, motion graphics, uh, web design, until I found myself in San Francisco where I started working at Visual Concepts. They make NBA 2K, uh, if you're familiar with that. Yep. Um, so, you know, I was there for three years. It's a yearly product. So I, I, got, a lot, I got a lot of experience. I shipped three games. But then after that, it, it was, uh, it, that felt like a good time to kind of move on and where I moved to... Um, uh, Outpost Games, which was a uh, kind of Silicon Valley tech startup slash game company where they were trying to make a mm -hmm. platform and a game. At the same time, the game was called SOS. It was this kind of social survival uh, game with betrayal and backstabbing and all this uh, drama. Um, and the platform was this kind of Twitch integrated um, voting and uh, like interaction-based platform. So I, I worked on both sides of those things. Uh, and that's where I met the uh, my other co-founders uh, for Afterburner Studios, um, Robert Taylor and Paul Svoboda. Uh, so the three of us, you know, we kind of uh, Outpost was a uh, investor-backed company, so mm -hmm. it, it it operated differently than a lot of other game companies do, when, especially in the tech space, because it had certain expectations for what the product would become. So for us, after having worked um, three years doing that. We, uh, we all kind of collectively wanted to do something that we felt more passionate about, that we were more directly connected to, um, that felt more like our vision. And that's uh, where Afterburner Studios was born and uh, where Dreamscaper was born. Wow, that's really interesting. That's quite a uh, quite a, a jump of things, but it's it's nice to know that you know you were able to take people from that environment and and spawn into something you know that you're all passionate about. Yeah, I mean everyone there was already very passionate about game making and really wanted to make an amazing product. It's just that um, unfortunately Outpost ended up folding, but it is one of those things where it's there's there's a lot of external pressure uh, and a lot of expectations on what the product will become. And it often is very hard to manage, um, especially given the, the the investment climate, you know, where people are putting in millions of dollars towards a company expecting, you know, X amount of return. So there, everyone there was, was really talented and I learned a lot there. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's good that I was able to link up with both Rob and Paul to do something after. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, so now let's actually get into the game itself. So Dreamscaper is a game that IndiePod has been watching since you guys created your Kickstarter. But for those who might not know anything about the game, can you describe what Dreamscaper is all about? Sure. Uh, yeah, so Dreamscaper, and, and you know, it's funny because it's also changed quite a bit 
since uh, the Kickstarter. Although a lot of the mm. the kind of the bases, the foundation was still there. But uh, Dreamscaper is uh, uh, the story of Cassidy. Um, she's a young woman who had moved from uh, her small hometown to a new city, and in doing so, trying to escape some of the the demons that had been bothering her for many years. Uh, so the, uh, as a player, you will be, uh, exploring Cassidy's waking life and, uh, her, her dreaming life. So as you, every night you fall asleep and you enter kind of a new dungeon and that has more of an action RPG, uh, roguelite kind of combat, uh, to it. And during the day in her waking world, you'll be going around and learning more about, uh, her past, making connections with people around her in her city, Red Haven, uh, and then, through both of these pieces, they interconnect. So the more that you develop Cassidy in the waking world, um, the more confident and powerful she will be in the dream world. And the further you progress in the dream world, uh, the faster and better um, you will be in at making these connections and building relationships in the waking world. That's super cool, first off. Um, on your website, you describe Dreamscaper as a strategic ARPG roguelite blending elements from brawlers, top-down shooters, and dungeon crawlers. So it sounds like you're pulling a lot of inspiration from a lot of different areas, and you can even hear that in the way you're describing this game. But can you tell us what were some of the main things that inspired Dreamscaper, whether that be games or other forms of media? Yeah, of course. And and I mean, we, we are pretty shameless about this. There's so much there's so many amazing games, indie games, um, and there's so much amazing stuff out there that uh, we are pretty shameless about. You know our inspirations. Uh, so for, for one, Binding of Isaac was a huge one. Ooh, love um, it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's just a uh, it it brought so many pieces together in a cohesive and an amazing way. And the system design is so solid in that game. So we looked at that and said, okay, here's here's kind of a format that we can use uh, and we can kind of build our own world for and uh, mm-hmm. uh, innovate in certain areas. So for us, starting with that, right, that kind of like exploration and system-driven um, uh, roguelite design. And then we expanded it out to kind of uh, complement our strengths and what we were most interested in. So the game has a very heavy melee focus and a heavy kind of like Mm -hmm. game feel focus Mm -hmm. so a lot of it is taking um uh those systems but then putting them onto uh more modernized feeling combat so Mm -hmm. you know looking at for me at least on the design side looking at things like like god of war the new one um there's there's a lot to borrow from that and a lot to look at and learn from in terms of how uh the, the the visceral nature and the improvisation that can come through a really uh, defined combat system, um, and then those. So those were two of our our, our biggest influences, and, and there's been so many other smaller ones. You know, like um, uh, uh, I'm blanking on the name, Fire Emblem, uh, Fire Emblem, Fire Emblem, the newest one. Uh, you know, they have some. They're doing really interesting things with uh, like the the uh, training cycles for students and and scheduling. Um, so we're kind of borrowing little bits and pieces here and there, uh, and to kind of pull them into something that, that we really connect with. Yeah. Going on to that, that fire emblem piece and the way that I see that the most is in, you know, the, when you're in the actual real world at daytime, you're walking around in these different locations and you're talking to individuals. And it seems like there's only a certain amount of time to do certain tasks or talk to certain people. Is there going to be something kind of like Fire Emblem where you have to make choices about who you build relationships with? 
Yes. So, uh, you know, we're still kind of in the nascent stages of this waking world development. Um, we're going to be moving into early access. So we still have, you know, six months to a year of development time after that. Um, and we've right. been working on the title for, I think, now about two years. So in the waking world currently, um, there, yeah, the, the major component is the learning the stories of these of the, the people in Red Haven and how they relate to Cassidy. But over time, mm -hmm. we're going to be expanding that to have more uh, systemic design. So things like how to spend your resources. Uh, already, we have some of that where you uh, craft and gift things, but we're going to be expanding that in terms of scheduling, You know, knowing where people are, um, knowing what are the, the best things to give to people. Um, finding items within the waking world uh, that will help facilitate more of these relationships. Uh, so there's a bunch of different component pieces that will be kind of layering on top of each other so that there's more depth in that section. Gotcha. That's really interesting. That's super cool to know. But one of my concerns with this, um, so, you know, we mentioned it, there's this mix between combat at night, but in the dream worlds or in the actual waking world, you have that relationship building where you're talking to people. Mm -hmm. My major concern with that is seeing that this is a roguelite and I assume many people will be racking up a lot of deaths in the game. How does that work as far as relationship building and progression in the game? So specifically, if I lose a run in the dream world, do I have to start all those relationships over again? No, you don't. And and honestly, this was a thing we that might have been the biggest challenge um, in, in kind of figuring out uh, how a persistent narrative was going to work in something mm -hmm. that restarts. And part of part of us going with this dream fiction from the beginning was because it, it not only does it allow you a lot of freedom in what the dreams contain, but it also fictionally made sense for restarting where Cassidy's life could persist, but she's having these reoccurring dreams. Um, so it, it, when you lose, the, there is persistent progress in the waking world. So there's a meta layer over everything. So your power grows um, in the mm -hmm. dreams as your as your relationships grow in the waking world so that stuff doesn't reset interesting so a little bit more on that topic so there is mention in the the actual game description that there will be permadeath so i understand that from a waking world it seems like you're keeping that but are there any other minor forms of progression that's happening so you see it sometimes in in different roguelites you know binding of isaac is a great example where you're always starting over as that same start for a character but as you progress in the actual game itself you might gain new items or you might gain new like small upgrades so for instance isaac you don't have anything when you first start but as you start playing and you unlock certain things you'll get the d6 which is an item he just always has every time you start is there going to be something to that nature like you know permanently upgrading your character or different items that you can start with yeah um uh, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So th uh, to be more specific about like the the kind of linking between the waking world and the dreaming world, like as you're mm -hmm. fostering these relationships, it's unlocking content in the dreams that increases your power. So mm -hmm. currently we have two sets for that or two different systems for that. One is that it just unlocks things um, that you can find in your dream. So talking with characters will give Cassie inspiration. So the next time she goes into this dream, she has the capability of finding something. And that doesn't exactly get at what you were mentioning. You're thinking, okay, how does this work uh, across a long span with player power? Um, and there's another component of that where building up uh, the relationships with 
these characters also allows Cassie to take a specific set of inspiration to kind of push a build in one way or the other. So for instance, mm-hmm. talking with Bruce um, uh, a lot and, and building that relationship will allow Cassie to have greater perception. Um, so she's able to uh, use range attacks better, um, dodge better. So it's, it's that kind of thing where there's mm. there are these two sacking sides where you can unlock potential power in the dreams, but then you can also uh, over time help grow Cassie's power so that the, your runs become easier and there's a sense of progression. Oh, that's really cool. Do you know right off the bat, like, uh, so a player first starts a game and they see different characters, is there going to be something as far as a tooltip that says, like, if you talk to this person, you'll get X, Y, Z, or is it more of build these relationships and find out what you get kind of a thing? It's a little bit of both. We try to breadcrumb it so that we we want to mm-hmm. make sure that uh, players don't feel lost, but we also want mm-hmm. there to be a sense of exploration and uh, a, a little like a sense of of um, uh, what's the right word? It's kind of like like wonder, right? And going through and kind of discovering these things. So it's it's kind of a a, a mix of both where we there is tutorialization uh, and mm-hmm. there is a bit of kind of pushing. Uh, in certain directions, but after that point, we try not to hold the player's hand too much. Gotcha. Speaking of holding the player's hands, is there going to be different forms of difficulty, or is this a roguelite where you know you're giving it this is one difficulty setting and you can keep playing it and progress, or is there going to be more forms of accessibility? Yeah, I'm actually I'm curious after I answer what what your perspective is as a player who it sounds like you've played quite a bit of roguelikes. Yeah. Um, so for us, accessibility is, a, is really important, but we also want to make sure that uh, the core experience is something that is tuned for the core audience, right? People who play roguelikes. Right. So right. you know, the core experience is tuned at a difficulty that we think is challenging, but fair. And then beyond that, we have uh, for the upcoming early access, we're going to have some simple difficulty settings, things that like as you uh, lose more, you, you can turn this on. So as you lose more, mm-hmm. uh, the game gets easier. Like it'll it'll buff Cassidy or reduce right. enemy damage. Um, so we want to make sure that players have options because mm-hmm. yeah, there's nothing worse than like playing a game and feeling like you're enjoy you're digging it, but it's just mm-hmm. not you you can't possibly compete. It's it's at a level that you don't want to spend the time for. So you want to allow right. a range for for all players. And we definitely had the discussion, which is where I want to loop you in. Is you know does that cheapen at all the the kind of core of what the game is or is this something that's a net positive i well so for me personally i've played a lot of roguelites it's probably one of my favorite genres um binding of isaac is my favorite game and i going back to that you know thinking about like there is different difficulties in the binding of isaac there's normal hard and then greed mode and greedier and so i will never play normal just because it's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that challenge. But mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there who still want to experience the game. So I think it it benefits it for having that. But I I think um, the way you're describing it actually sounds even better from a standpoint of, of accessibility to say like, you know, you can die a couple of times and then the game asks like, do you want to change the settings? Like the way I'm thinking of it is more or less a, a difficulty modifier where you can change certain things. So maybe like... You know, you just want boss healths to be cut in, you know, 20% or something like that. Like a, a small, like little toggle that you can go back and forth, I think would help certain people to to find out like, and it depends because I probably wouldn't use it, but I'm sure there's people out there who would say like, 
I can beat this boss. I keep getting really close, but there's just one thing that's stopping me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I can see that as a plus, but when you're thinking about like main audience, which, and I don't want to say I'm the main audience for roguelites, but I, I do play them quite a lot. I probably wouldn't take advantage of that feature. So mm-hmm. it, it depends on how much time that that takes the team. And I, I think that's also, you know, a, a great thing about early access is your core audience, you're going to find out the minute early access rolls through and the minute they start having that voice of, we want X, Y, Z. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yeah. I have a lot of things to say on that. But yeah. The first is that in terms of, of like the kind of the, that modifier thing that you're discussing, mm-hmm. that's where we're starting, but we're going to be packaging that as like a difficulty option. And gotcha. Uh, yeah, have you played Celeste? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Celeste uh, uh, has a great set of accessibility options, including difficulty, where you can kind of modify individual components. So that is that is something we've thought about as well, and are are you know possibly going to explore it. It depends, like you said, on early access, what feedback we get. But I right. could I could see a world where it's like you know the bosses are too challenging, but the rest of the run I'm I'm okay with, or maybe exactly. I, I get too overwhelmed easily. Like I can handle a boss, but like I get overwhelmed by all the enemies, so I want to reduce the damage they deal or something. So I'm I'm okay with allowing players to tune things. Um, we, mm-hmm. but there has always yeah of course there's always been a discussion of like what is the design intent? Does that get uh, tarnished? by too much modification by players. And I, I think where we're falling right now is that it's better to give players options because that'll allow more players to enjoy the game how they want to play it. Yeah, I mean, it's very true because like taking Celeste into account, I never use the accessibility options, but I know a ton of people who love the game and wouldn't have ever had a chance to experience it unless they had those options because they said, right. you know, this is way too hard for me. I can't do this, but I love the story. I love the the actual feeling of it because it's, you know, it's a good platformer, but it is very challenging. So mm-hmm. I think it makes a lot of sense because the the whole, you know, there's so many games coming out, right? Like every day there's games coming out. And I think the wider of an audience you have, the more likely you're going to be succeed. So I, I, do, I do think it makes sense to give them those options. Um, but, you know, take that with a grain of salt based on who your audience is. Yeah, the hope is that it doesn't uh, detract from the player experience of, of core players that, you know, they, they're, they're still, that still gets retained. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it, like you said, it opens it up to a wider audience of people who might not have um, initially uh, thought to play something like this, but now they have an opportunity to. Yeah, and I think I think you get over that with maybe like, you know, something to the nature of achievements. You say like, well, you played it. You're, you're the person who doesn't want the accessibility mode. You wanted the the super hard, you know, well, super hard, but like normal mode. So we're going to give you a specific badge or something that says like, hey, you did it, you know? Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of uh, appeases them because they say like, oh, well, I did it the way, you know, it's meant to based on them. But the people right. who just want to experience it and play it, they probably don't care as much. Or if they do, they're going to, play it at their accessibility level, you know, whatever that might be and work their way up. Exactly. Yeah. And the other thing is that this has kind of been a conti- uh, um, a consistent trend with uh, our design. And I, and I have to give a huge credit to uh, Rob for this. He's, you know, he's always advocating um, for different accessibility features and, and ways to think about how to limit the friction for players. And um, one of the, a couple examples, uh, one thing that, you know, we've noticed is that in a roguelike, if you're not shuffling bosses, like Isaac shuffles mm-hmm. bosses, a lot of different game shuffles bosses, but for us, we actually mm-hmm. have a narrative place for each boss in the sequencing of levels. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot harder for us to shuffle bosses, at least at the, at this moment. It's something we would like to do in the future. So 
uh, as an alternative, we, after you've beaten a boss, um, you then can skip the boss. So you've, oh, you've done okay. the achievement, you can skip the boss. Skipping the boss, you don't get as many rewards as you would mm -hmm. have playing the boss. So there's a trade-off, but it also helps for someone who is just like, I don't want to spend the time playing these three bosses to get to where I was before. I kind of want to like breeze through this. And, right. um, and similarly, uh, you can skip parts of the waking world in terms of uh, just going back to sleep and going through these runs until you feel like, okay, I have enough resources or I want to explore this more. You know, trying to make things integrated, but also optional to some degree so that players who want the core experience and really enjoy that don't feel like they're being taken off that path. Gotcha. That's really interesting because I, I noticed some of that and I was watching some some of the gameplay for it and someone got out of the dream world and then went right back into it rather than going into the waking world. Now, for that, is there any sense of you're going to possibly miss something though? Like, Because it, it looked like there was a calendar uh, that you had. You had calendar days when you would wake up into the waking world. So if you go back to sleep, are you going to, you know, go through days so like if you just kept playing five times you would end up sleeping through five days and then someone would be like where have you been yeah exactly well so we're not there just yet that's that's part of that component i think that we're going to be layering on in early access um of okay. like like you know for instance relationship expectations we're more at the point where it's like play like uh, on certain days people are going to be in certain locations. So it'd be easier to find gotcha. as you start to map that out. But we're going to be layering on those things where there is a sense of um, that players are going to be missing on certain things uh, if they're mm -hmm. not uh, exploring both sides of the game. And even, uh, I guess not to give too much away, but the, 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 the story progression is also going to rely on players exploring the waking world. So um, we want to make sure that that, that also has less friction. So being able to skip past sequences and being able to like move through the story quickly if really what you want to do is just play the game. Gotcha. That sounds super interesting. I'm really excited to see this, how it all combines together. Um, going a little bit more into the actual dream world itself. So while checking out some of the gameplay for uh, the demos, I noticed you seem to be mixing a good variety of different uh different elements in each one of those rooms. So it might be just basic combat. It might be event rooms. Some even have puzzle systems in them. Mm -hmm. um, how much emphasis do you think puzzles will actually play in the game versus normal combat? Yeah. I, I, again, this is like a, another thing that follows the same model. You can skip the puzzle if you want. You can totally run mm -hmm. through the puzzle room. You don't get locked in there. You don't have to do it. So for players that are, want that combat experience purely, uh, then they don't have to do the puzzle. Completing the puzzle, uh, so for on, on the design side, why we put the puzzles in, we really like to change the pace, and mm -hmm. I, I enjoy it as well when I'm playing uh, roguelikes to have kind of a balance between the core system and something that connects to the loop, but that does not necessarily have to continually test those core abilities. Uh, I think it adds for longevity to the game yeah. because you're kind of breaking up the pacing of the game. So there's, I think it's just fun. I think, I think the puzzles work quite well. Uh, and then the, the other aspect is that they give you a reward when you complete them. So actually taking the time to do the puzzles, uh, gives Cassidy more power in combat. Gotcha. Now, are those puzzles going to be specific to, cause I know this is kind of a strange crossbreed between randomized levels and some elements that are going to be more they just have to be the way they are because of, like you said, a boss is going to be the same in each of those areas. So mm -hmm. are the puzzles going to have that same feel to them or are those going to be randomly generated as well? Yeah, we have uh, we have one puzzle in now and we have a second one that's going to come uh, to, for early access. And both mm -hmm. puzzles are procedurally generated. Uh, I, 
it, you know, it's interesting. This is something we also talked about quite a bit. Is like, okay, what, well, first off, what is this puzzle going to be? Can we make a procedural puzzle that is fun over and over again, or should we make something where we have to? It has to become like a content treadmill where we're like churning out, you know, hundreds of puzzles. And we okay. settled on going with the procedural route because for for scope, you know, we're a small team. Uh, but then also we found that there are quite a few puzzles out there and a few uh, options that we could explore that. Uh, where the, the core of the system was really enjoyable and it did not necessarily need us to create a hand-tailored puzzle. Right, right. No, that makes a lot of sense. That was one of my big concerns was, you know, if we had to do this and that puzzle room was there each time, but it didn't change, it would almost be like a, you know, you'd do it the first couple of times and you'd be like, ah, oh, it's the same thing. I don't really care as much, even though it gives an upgrade. So I'm glad right. at least it, it is giving you that that variation. And even though it's the same puzzle, it's a different style to it. Yeah, I mean, all of us are roguelike players, and we are all very concerned about um, a variety and making right. sure that the game feels fresh every time you play it. Yeah. So, speaking of variety, what are some of those like you know the the additional rooms? So, when you think of event rooms or things that aren't just combat, what are some of the the ideas that the team has been using to kind of keep it fresh? Yeah, so there's uh, we have quite a few different types of event rooms. Obviously, there's like you know the traditional ones, like a shopkeeper type thing, where mm -hmm. you can mm -hmm. you know trade resources for stuff. Um, but then we also have uh, uh, like economy exchange rooms, which is very I'm, I'm sure you'll find familiar from Binding of Isaac, um, because we have a few different sources of economy, like your health, um, your your kind of like power meter, your lucid meter, uh, your projectiles, and like you can trade all these things. Um, there's also story moments that are built into mm -hmm. these rooms as well. And we're going to see a lot more of that during early access. So uh, exploring the levels, um, you know, not just in the waking world, there's story built in on the, the dream side as well. Gotcha. That that was actually another one of my questions because I saw somewhere that it said there will be challenges, stories, and more in mm -hmm. some of these rooms. So what exactly will, just a little bit more, and you don't have to give any actual like, you know, this is what the story is, but like, what does that mean? Is that something where it's going to be a cutscene? Is that something where you're going to be actively doing something that progresses the story? What does that look like? Yeah, there's two components to that. So there is the kind of like as you're exploring the world, you'll be finding little bits and pieces, elements of Cassie's memories, and those will play out once you've interacted with them. So you can go about exploring the rest of the dream without mm -hmm. kind of sitting down for like a story sequence. Um, and then uh, layered on top of that, uh, in the future, we're going to be adding components that are more straightforward narrative that can be skipped or passed over. Um, but mm -hmm. if you wanted a, a deeper look into what's going on with Cassidy and, and her lore and her life, then yeah, they're they're kind of like um, they're kind of like sequences, but you're not locked in. They're more like uh, character dialogue-y type things. Gotcha. And one more quick question on that. So since these are procedurally generated levels but with a theme behind them because there's that story are these going to be you know you get to level one and it's always going to have this one story room or is it going to be like as you play over time you might get one of those even though you've already beaten that same level but going through it it the story just progresses little by little yeah we're trying to go for the latter so we're trying to build um, so that you're going to be seeing the, the, the same locations, but new memories and new story elements are going to be cropping up as you run through it over and over again. 
Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, the last question I have about the actual like combat and, and how that feels is, is more on abilities. So I've seen, uh, you know, different weapons, different ranged, uh, attacks that you have different, uh, kind of spells, it seems like, Mm -hmm. but then are there also, uh, passive abilities? So, you know, thinking of, and I, I hate to keep harping on Binding of Isaac, but thinking of like Binding of Isaac, you had different items and different abilities that changed your attack even without thinking of the attack itself. Is there going to be something like that that you're collecting over time? Yeah, uh, we have kind of a hybrid Diablo Binding of Isaac system. So there's modifiers for everything you pick up. So there's you have your dodge, um, you have your, uh, your shield, and then you have your uh, two weapons. You have a melee weapon and a ranged weapon, and then you have two uh, like kind of like you know like magic slots. But there, for us, it's this is Cassidy's uh, lucid ability, her her ability to kind of like perceive the world around her more so than she normally be able to, and, and tap into that. So uh, you have those two slots, and each of those slots, when you pick up something new, has a possibility of being of a different level of rarity with a different set of modifiers, which then passively modifies the equipment. And uh, on top of that. Uh, you know, and this is another thing that you'll recognize from Isaac and, and a bunch of other games is uh, we have this keepsake system where Ka- some of Cassie's memories are now tied with items that she finds. Um, so, for instance, uh, you might find a chemistry textbook, and that chemistry textbook uh, allows Cassidy's uh, poison damage to increase. And you know, other passive types of things like like you had mentioned, a passive that would allow uh, Cassidy's um, to. Sh- uh, arrow to split off into multiple arrows or to like seek for enemies so a lot of these modifiers can be stacked on top of each other so that hopefully Mm -hmm. you have that experience from isaac by the end where like you might have a crazy run and you end up with a ton of really really cool shit and it's all like uh totally procedural um but you still have that magic of finding something like finding a bunch of synergistic combinations that's super cool. I honestly talking to you has made me more excited about this game. There's so many different like deep elements to it that I feel will all combine to something amazing. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I would like to close out the interview the same way we do with all of our interviews, which is with a general question of advice. So for those aspiring to create their own games or just in general to get into the indie space, do you have any advice or anything that you know you wish you would have known before getting to where you are now? Ooh, that second part is the tricky part, right? What what <laughs> advice do you have that you wish you would have known? Well, the first part, I think, just in as general advice, I would say whatever you're thinking of doing, just do it. Uh, it the best, at least for me, so for some people it might be different, but I, the best um, teacher is experience. So just going, even if it's not going to be good, start scope small, start small, uh, make you know a, a game in a week, make a game in a month, you know, keep it contained and just learn. Just do and do and do and learn, learn, learn. Um, because it's going to be challenging to kind of jump in because there's so much. If you if you have not done uh, game making before, there's just it's so overwhelming. There's so many different disciplines that have to come together. So the mm-hmm. best thing you can do is not worry about quality, not worry about how it's going to turn out, and just start making things. And over time, you'll start to develop an eye for it. Um, and, and how to approach problems in different ways that you might not have known before. So for me, experience, it's one of those tricky things because you can't just get experience all of a sudden. Like it's, there's no right. fast, you know, shortcut for that. It's just, you have to kind of go through the process of just making stuff. Makes sense. Wow. Um, and then anything as far as that you wish you had known beforehand? 
Yeah, see, I was trying to covertly go past that question because now I have to now I have to come <laughs> up with a, a good one. Um, yeah, what what would I have loved to know? Yeah, I think you know I, I do think it's like I, I was very hard on myself when I started. I'm sure many people starting out are, and I, mm-hmm. I do think that's part of it is learning to be um, okay with uh, where you start at because that often is discouraging. So I think that might be something that I. Uh, would if I were to go back and talk to past Ian, I would tell him, um, you know, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to be frustrated, and uh, all, all of that will pass over time as you start to learn more. I mean, there's obviously st- things are still challenging and frustrating. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah, I think I think being a little bit more forgiving and taking time to uh, be okay with failure is is something that when I was younger I was so eager, you know, so that that right. having that kind of peace of mind. I think would, would make the process uh, less stressful when I was younger. That makes sense. Yeah. So just get started and don't feel too bad if it sucks because you can keep trying. Exactly. See, and you said it, you, you summed it up <laughs> so much faster <laughs> and more eloquently. I appreciate that. Thank you. <laughs> I wouldn't say eloquently, but um, for those listening, Dreamscaper currently has a free demo available on Steam. So you can check out, I think it's said to have the first four to six hours of content. Is that correct? Uh Hopefully far more than that. So we, we put out a prologue in um, February, April, April. Um, we put out a prologue and uh, players, we've seen um, really encouraging numbers. So players, you know, playing tens, tens of hours, you know, 50 hours um, playing just the prologue, which was the first two levels. So I think where you got the four to six um, number is the levels. So we're planning to have six oh, okay. levels We in the prologue. We had two. Uh, or we had one, and then we had a, an, addition, an addition that people could buy. Um, so we're going we're to have six levels and four biomes of those six levels, and we'll be adding more biomes so that the levels are a little bit, and the story is a little bit more uh, rounded out. But you should be, for early access, you should be expecting you know 30 plus hours of gameplay. That's awesome. So like we said, you know, there's uh, that prologue out right now, so you could check out some of the game. The full game looks to be slated for sometime in August of this year. Once again, Ian, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, is there anything you want to shout out before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I pr- really appreciate you having um, having me on and talking about Dreamscaper. And yeah, and just look for, uh, we don't have the release date set just yet, but you can go to dreamscapergame.com. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter uh, at dreamscapergame. Um, and we'll have uh, more information about the exact date in August coming up soon. Perfect. Thanks again, Ian. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Josh.